Welcome back to Matter of Fact. This moment in Afghan history may be recorded as the time when dreams died for an entire generation of women and girls. 20 years ago, an extreme version of Sharia law was imposed in Afghanistan. Women couldn't work. Girls were banned from schools. When they left their homes, women had to be accompanied by a male family member and had to cover their faces in public. Despite Taliban promises that women's rights will be observed within the construct of Islamic law, reports are emerging of the Taliban going door to door, threatening women and their safety and reinstating repressive policies. The situation is described by a woman inside Afghanistan whose identity we are withholding for security reasons. We lost our identity in the achievement that we succeed in the last 20 years and more. We have been counted as a zero now. In the last 48 hours, there is no world for us outside of our houses and no hope. Since yesterday, the searching door to door for employees who work in the government and induce the deadly silence of the city breaks with the sound of shotgun and ambulances. At the end, I can say the chance of our survive getting near to zero. Zainab Salbi is an Iraqi-American women's rights activist. She's the founder of Women for Women International, a global effort to support women survivors of war and conflict. Zainab Salbi, thank you for talking with me. The situation right now is unfolding. It's deteriorating uh, rapidly. And I know by the time this interview airs, things will have changed, maybe significantly. Uh, I'd like to start, though, with what you're hearing at this moment from the women that you work with on the ground in Afghanistan. Here's the, what they are narrating, is that the Taliban have been targeting and assassinating women in the last year, actually, in different provinces. These are women who are well-known, whether they are women's rights activists, educators, public journalists, anything like that. And right now, what they are doing is knocking door to door, trying to find out who worked with a Western NGO? Who worked with a Western uh, government? Who was a women's rights advocate? So there is fear, crushing of dreams, and serious, serious worries about their safety. Can you talk more specifically um, to set up for people so they can understand what, what, what stands to be lost, especially when it comes to human rights and when it comes to opportunities for women in Afghanistan. So much was gained over the last years, and that is open education to all women. That is That goes beyond Islamic studies, you know, that it's now we have schools, we have universities for women, we have women working in all sectors. This is, none of that was allowed. And the fear right now is that it's going to just all be deleted. You have called on the Biden administration uh, through a letter to help these women. List for me the kind of help you want from the Biden administration. So they are about 8,000 women who have been identified and their families who have been identified that they're in imminent danger and we need to get them out right now, keeping the troops in the, in the airport there until we evacuate every single woman and their family who are in danger. Second is extend uh, urgent visas for them, you know, so they can come to the U.S. on a humanitarian parole and then we can secure them safety. And the third thing would be 
to make sure that they have financial support while they arrive in the U.S. at least for six months until they stand on their feet. And the last but not least, the U.S. still has the two leverage, diplomacy and development money. And we're urging the Biden administration to use these two leverages to make sure that money keeps on going to women's rights organizations and keep on funneling for women's education and work and rights uh, for women in Afghanistan. Can diplomacy and, frankly, cold hard cash, just money, be effective levers against the Taliban, do you think? The only leverage that we have is that the Taliban are going to look for Western approval. And so, yes, there is some leverage to use it. So I hope that we use it and not let it go. What is your biggest worry at this moment? I'm worried about Afghan women, of course, and their security and their lives, because there are so many people I actually know personally, and they are scared, and it's breaking my heart. I'm worried about national security all over the country, the regional countries. This is the reemergence of a very religious, fundamentalist government. I do not see any good in that. And I'm worried, most importantly, honestly, about the values, American values of freedom and women's rights and democracy that we believed and we saw the world on and we fought for, that these values are being questioned right now. It's questioned by the world and it's questioned by Afghans. And they're saying, where are these values when our rights right now are at stake? Zainab Salbi, thank you for talking with me. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Soldat. Coming up on Matter of Fact, We've got a question about vaccine passports. Historically speaking, did those vaccine cards work? Did they actually help stop the spread of disease or people bringing disease uh, into the country? We look at the pros and cons of having to prove you've had your shots. And later, humpback whales in Glacier Bay, Alaska are getting some breathing room. We'll explain the benefits of some supersized social distancing. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. The debate over vaccine passports is often loud, emotional, and not based in fact. But frankly, vaccine passports aren't a new thing. Up-to-date immunization records are required for overseas travel, for specific healthcare jobs, and for entry to schools and childcare programs. The yellow card, as it's often called, was introduced in 1959. It was required for travelers entering countries where they could be exposed to yellow fever, cholera, or rubella. When the smallpox epidemic reached the U.S. in 1899, the hardest hit states made vaccination mandatory and required proof before people could go to work or attend school or ride public transportation. Dr. Peter Chin Hong is an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School. He studies the impact of vaccine passports as a weapon in the battle against the evolving COVID-19 virus. Dr. Chin Hung, nice to have you. Thank you for talking with me. Is the argument against the vaccine passport new? I mean, I know the passport itself isn't new, but historically were there arguments about having to carry a vaccine card as well? No, that argument is not new at all. In fact, at the turn of the 20th century, people were debating, you know, the pros and cons of, you know, government interference and personal freedom. But at the same time, there's also this thread of thought and this philosophy around freedom to participate in, in communal and public activities as well. If you wanted to participate in public discourse and public life in community, you know, that idea of, of 
wanting to protect the herd was really, um, I think, emerging at that time and juxtaposed against this idea that uh, personal liberty would be sacrificed. Right now, there are no consistent requirements state to state. There is no sort of centralized organization that manages it. Is that something that you would recommend? Lack of standardization, lack of national strategy has plagued us from the beginning of the COVID pandemic in the United States. And this is another example where I think having a national passport like some countries, uh, Israel, or even having a global national standard uh, through the WHO would be the way to go eventually. Of course, when you start looking globally, that gets into you know really issues of, of equity because not everyone has access to a vaccine. But still in the United States, there is enough uniformity of access now, uh, a plethora, a surplus of vaccines uh, that, that could be thought of uh, at some level. Have you found that because we are seeing the Delta variant, that that's motivating people now to get vaccinated? Exactly. I think that uh, certainly fear and seeing what's going on has been a really unexpected and powerful motivator for people to get vaccinated. You've had uh, increase in some communities by more than 100%. Even in California, which is relatively uh, highly vaccinated as a state, we've had an increase of 40% of folks uh, since getting the vaccine since the start of the Delta um, surge. Right now, when there is such regional outbreaks, I think, you know, there's probably less political will to do something that's coordinated and national. Uh, but if things start to heat up again, and of course, with COVID, we never know what's going to happen. You can predict all you want. Um, I think things would be uh, moving towards more, you know, coordinated national response. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, thank you so much for your insight and your time. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Salida. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, 8,000 police officers are signing up for a class about moral courage, how this course could change policing across an entire state, and whales are spreading their fins, swimming further apart and expressing themselves much more. A whale of a story you need to hear to believe. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. to a weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention, even if you're too busy. It's being called one of the first state-mandated use-of-force training programs in the country. Connecticut is rolling out required learning for all of its police officers. Instead of focusing on guns and other tactical tools, the training will emphasize moral courage, empathy, and de-escalation. The goal is to reduce deadly shootings and violent acts by officers. The training creates a single standard across the state instead of leaving it up to individual police departments. The decision is in response to last summer's protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder and other deadly police violence. Officers will learn when to use any kind of force based on the new state laws. Those laws require officers to intervene if a colleague uses inappropriate force and ban standing or kneeling on people's necks and chokeholds. All of the more than 8,000 officers in the state must complete the program by December 31st, 2022. Coming up, the playful whales of Glacier Bay are taking a vacation from tourists. 
how your travel plans could affect their peaceful paradise. humpback whales get some breathing room. In Glacier Bay, Alaska, they're reveling in the freedom of a quieter, less congested ocean. About half of the area's marine traffic stopped because of COVID-19. Before the pandemic, whale communication was sort of like humans in a crowded bar. They talked louder, they clung to each other, they had simple conversations. With fewer cruise ships passing through, the whales are spreading their fins, swimming further apart and expressing themselves much more. Even calves are enjoying greater independence away from their mother's watchful eyes. But their peaceful paradise will soon be disrupted again as more cruise ships return to Alaskan waters. It was nice while it lasted. I'm Soledad O'Brien. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about an Afghan community in New Mexico fearing for loved ones back home, the global campaign to save Afghan women and girls and preserve their hard-won rights, the history of the vaccine passport, and a look at Connecticut's new use of force training program for police, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.